the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons and welcome to what promises to be another enthralling edition of the Tenuous Links podcast and mainly because we've got a special guest. But I am, before I introduce our special guest who somehow has managed to come back, um, I'm going to start with a quote. It is today an accepted principle of golfing architecture that the tiger should be teased and trapped and tested while the rabbit should be left to peace since he can make his own hell for himself. Now, for some reason, and somehow without financial contributions, Mike Cocking uh, from OCM has agreed to return. Um, Sadly for him, he didn't get a preview of our discussion topics. Uh, These are questions that have occurred to friends, colleagues, and more importantly, me. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Michael Cocking from OCM Golf Design. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you, Phil. Nice to be here. Who who said that quote? You look like you're excited. I am. am. Bernard Bernard Darwin. Have you not heard that quote before? Um, I... I may have heard it, it didn't it didn't um no it didn't ring any bells so that wasn't one of my questions by the way is have you heard that quote no before? no I mean I, I've heard very similar quotes on the same topic but um no I'm not sure I've heard that one before so it's well, a good one go. 15 15 love to me yeah. but but therefore my first question is how relevant is that quote to modern golf architecture given that Bernard Darwin died in 1961 um how how relevant is that to what you do today about about leaving the rabbit to just bugger up because we're crap and being a rabbit. I know what life is like being a rabbit. Yeah, um, well, I mean... tease the tiger. I, um, I think it's more relevant than ever. It's just that it's become more difficult than ever because the game, the elite game and the average game are, are now further apart than ever before. And uh, most of that's due to the distance the ball's going. So, you know, back in the... There was a great... You know, golf technology didn't really change from um, once hickory stopped being... So just after 1930, when steel shafts were the norm, didn't really change that much up until the 90s. Um, To the point where there's a great... There's a terrific book on the the 1975 Masters, which is the one that Nicholas won, Weisskopf was in there. Um, Yeah, it's... Most people regard it as, and, and Miller, of course, and most people regard it as one of the best masters um, of all time. But there's a little nugget in the book where it, it talks about Jack's equipment and his driver and his five wood were a combined 70 years old during that week. <laughs> you know, he had a five wood, I think, from the 40s and maybe his driver was from like, I don't know, the late 40s or the late 30s. Like, it was incredible. Like you'd never get, I mean, now... Once it's six months old, I mean, it's rare. Like you see Stenson using that three wood for a long time and, you know, yeah, and everyone yeah. sort of made a big deal about that because it was 15 years old. And, you know, so the ball, the, the distance they were hitting persimmons and, and you know, and, and the sort of the average member, I guess, that the games were far closer than what they are now, now being so far apart. Yet every, certainly every course we work at that's that capable of holding tournaments you know that's one of the the key things is trying to make the game easier for the average golfer and harder for the the very good golfer um and it, that is a constant challenge it's sort of our our nirvana as architects is that that is what we're trying to achieve so. because i think that there's another quote from john lowe that 
in researching um, what will be an exciting podcast, uh, I discovered it, and it's one that I'd never heard before but I love, which is the object of inventors is to reduce the skill required for golf. If it were not for the counter skill of the architects, the game would be emasculated. Hmm. Um, and I think therein lies the summary of, of this battle of rabbit and mm. tiger, mm. or of your, exactly as you said, of, of what you have to do when given pretty exciting jobs. And there is a pretty exciting job that we will speak about later on that I think is one of the the greatest gets from an Australian golf company ever to get no exposure. It's the Jason Scrivener of, <laughs> uh, of, of wins. Um, but I, I want to build up to that, so I'll, I'll give you a bigger intro when it's time. But I want to start with some Design 101. Yep. Um, so just bear with me. Just pretend that I'm me. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and therefore suffer, and suffer my questioning. Um, vision versus reality. When it comes to design, yep. you set up with a vision and you deliver a reality. How often do the two marry up? I think it's common that the, the, the general principle ends up being similar, but the detail may change. So, you know, if, if you're working on a, an area of the course or on a site that's heavily wooded, for instance, and you've got to remove trees... Even though you've got contour plans and what have you, it's you're kind of you know it is a bit of a guess um, as to knowing exactly what the ground conditions are like or what the views in the distance are like, and um, so you know a green might shift a little bit left or a bit right, or um, you know maybe you had you imagined it would be heavily bunkered, but you, you cleared the trees and you found this really interesting ground contour, and you can achieve the same concept, but not with bunkers. So. That is very common, um, and that can even be on you know courses like like Peninsula, for instance, the the redesign work we did there. Um, I think if you looked at the master plan that we did initially and looked at the way it's ended up, every hole would be slightly different. But something like the eighth north, we, we, you know, we always wanted it to be a, a short par four. We wanted a big dominant hazard on the inside corner and. A reward for playing close to it. Well, that still happened, but you know maybe there's three bunkers around the green instead of two, or you know so some of the some of the detail might be different, but the the broad vision is still very much the same. And maybe that massive mound, short right, that taunts me every time I'm there, might have been flattened out a little bit, could've. Michael, to give me an out. <laughs> it could have, and and I guess that's why a lot of architects, us included, um, would prefer. We see it a, a better way of implementing work is to do a concept but then spend a lot of time on the ground working as things evolve and as as holes sort of are built out of the ground um you see opportunities you know it might be there might be a really interesting contour this you know suddenly stop you know let's let's work with that um whereas some architects and certainly during the boom years in the 80s it was quite common uh, for them to do a plan and they would pretty much mail it in to the contractor to build. They might get one or two visits. And, and I guess the, the problem I see with that method is that you, you're assuming that the plan is correct, like that the plan's right. <laughs> yeah. And therefore any deviation from the plan diminishes the product. Um, whereas there could have been all sorts of opportunities along the way to improve the design, but... The, the people building it, they don't know. I mean, they're just, they're just doing what they're told. And, and, you know, the architect's role almost becomes one of visiting to make sure it's being built as per the plan rather than looking at 
the holes in the course and saying to themselves, well, is this as good as it can be? Or could it be improved? Could, could we have done this? Could we have moved that hole? Maybe there's an extra T, you know. So that, and that's, I guess, that the split with architects between those that are a bit more plan-focused and those that are more sort of field-focused and like to spend time out in the dirt. And do you think ultimately that's something that separates... Uh, this is, again, not a question necessarily from my wonderful list of questions, but is that something that, that OCM, you you want to be renowned for and known for, the guys with mud on... Or, sorry, the team with mud on your boots? Uh, is that a badge of honour for you? Uh, it is, but it's not, uh, it's not meant to sound like it's unique. It might be unique no, 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 in no, Australia. No, no. I mean, there's not many firms... Yeah. I think we're the only firm that build our own work. I mean, we've got a team of guys... They're not contractors. They, they work for us. They're on the, the payroll. Right. Right. Um, right. We own a lot of bits of equipment that we've sort of assembled over the years f- specifically for the purpose of building golf holes. Whereas it's, it, it's kind of become, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the biggest names in golf were, were ex-professionals or professional, you know, Greg Norman, Jack yes. Nicholas, yeah. you know, all the rest of it. Gary Player, Arnold Palmer. And then the, the current generation... Now people know Bill Corr and Tom Doak and Gil Hansen. Whereas, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you wouldn't find those names in a Golf Digest in the 80s. And, and they were all influenced by or worked with Pete Dye. And, you know, and, and, and that was one of Pete's big things was not really doing plans. You might get a there's a great, there's actually a great napkin in the clubhouse at Sawgrass, which is the routing for the course. And it's literally like a table napkin with some red scrolls on it. And that's pretty much it. Like there were no plans. You know, he would do it all out in the field. You know, he would work with his guys and, um, you know, make changes and um, and literally watch things from the evolve from the ground up. And and so I think that probably one of his, you could argue one of his lasting legacies was not necessarily the the courses he built, but the generation of architects he influenced because they're pretty much all all the guys now that are dominating I think we're influenced by that method and, and they're all the, the names I mentioned before. And we, we were really lucky. We worked with Tom when we were quite young. I, I was um, probably 25 or 26 and was helping out at St Andrews Beach, you know, in 2001 or two and got to be involved with, you know, the building of a, a great golf course from day dot and, and all through the, the planning and the design process. And, and Ashley, um, my design partner, did the same at Barnboogle. And so we both sort of got exposure to this and we got to, most importantly, we got to see how they went about building, um, constructing, and, th- and they built using this method. And so that, uh, no doubt, that influenced us a lot. And we kind of, from that day onwards, we decided that, well, that, that's the way you, that's the only way, surely, to set up a, a company. So that's a very long, so long-winded answer. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but my life is long-winded. So it's interesting that, that in, in terms of these journeys from... You know, when we go back to the, the, the McDonald's and the Ross and the Rainers um, and even the, um, the Colts were, were talking about through to then, so specialist designers who had a passion for golf. Mackenzie, I obviously won't forget him. Alex Russell. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you could just go on and on, um, let alone the work that the, the Morecambs did. All the way through to then we got into this, it had to be a celebrity designed course without being harsh. Mm. But it became this celebrity phase. And now we've moved back to... Specialist course designers who who do it for a living and get it and don't have bias. They have the ability to have vision um, and implement it, which I get yeah. is a really exciting transition. Is that 
a great course. Uh, you know, oh wow, it's a core Crenshaw. Mm. You know, oh wow, it's an OCM. Oh wow, it's a um, um, a Doak. You know, Renaissance. It yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. It's it's these are the places that I'm playing. That's the excitement. Whereas in you know, it was for a while there, it was a I'm playing Lakelands. Mm. It's a Nicholas. Oh, how good! Until you realise that oh, he's, just because I'm a good player, and I know we spoke about that in our first uh, edition. Just because I'm a great yeah. player does not make me a great course designer. But it's so, I think society though, like you think about like, you know, like in the in the the forties, I guess, and prior, you know, you had your butcher, you had your 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 grocer, you had your, you had all the yeah, little yeah. specific shops that you'd go to and then the 60s was and 70s and 80s was the boom of the supermarket and now now we're sort of almost going back the other way where people are actually seeking out these little specialty bakeries and specialty butchers and specialty things because they've realized that well supermarket can't do it you know they're not going to get all the (laughs) all these great little products and the story of the butcher who holds the fillet steak for you who just says, and I was talking to a friend of mine who you bumped into at Peninsula Kingswood. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, about, about he's got a butcher that, that every now and again he'll ring him and just say, by the way, I've got a piece of fillet steak. I've put it aside for you. And not even a, it's dear, it's cheap. That doesn't come into question. It's, oh, by the way, I've tucked it aside for you. Anyway, we're getting distracted. So what you were talking about before about boots on the ground, yeah. just to bring it back to... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. This is a, a, a good lead into one of the questions that I've always wondered about, swales and slopes. Yep. So how much of that is mapped and how much of that is just ground transformation? They talk about, you know, when the Open at Royal St George's, they were talking about how different the course looks because it just evolves. And even Kiwa, the course evolves. So how, how closely or tightly do you map a swale and a slope? Or are there, key, are there key drop-offs that you need, but how they end up forming is purely... Actually, you know, I quite like that. Uh, I think the big-scale contour might be planned whether it's drawn or just because it's a huge change in grade you know if a a t's 20 foot higher than the fairway well that's unlikely to change the small scale contour is the real key that that's the tricky thing to build and that's the that those little wrinkles and creases in the ground that's what i think is so interesting in golf because it it ensures that the game can change from one day to the next you know one day one day you're on a slight down slope, the next day you're on a slight up slope. You, you, like your ball will never finish in the same place two days in a row. And it also exposes, I think, it, it helps good players. It gives them a chance to elevate themselves against their competitors. Because um, a good player can kind of adjust his stance or figure out, oh, this, you know, the lie's not sitting so well or I have to do this or I have to do that. Um, and that you, you couldn't, even if you could draw it on a plan it would be difficult to then get someone to be able to <laughs> build it as per the plan, uh, unless it was using some sort of sophisticated bit of GPS equipment. Most of that little stuff, actually, it's, it's much better um, doing it in, in the field and, and with guys that have experience doing it because you, <clears throat> there was that great line about Mackenzie talking about, you know, the, to build the best greens, just go into the town and find the local village idiot and get him to build a flat putting green. Because that is, that is almost the way to... They're almost happy accidents, to be honest. Um, what, because the subtleties is what makes the difference. Yeah, one of Tom's guys, I remember chatting to him, he talked about he'd, they'd sometimes in the, in the dozer, they'd kind of put it on a hard lock, like, you know, right or left, and, and dig the, deliberately dig the, the blade into the ground and almost do like donuts, do wheel spins, and just kind of kick the ground around in completely random fashion. 
And then you might even just let the wind and the rain do its thing and not don't overdo it. The, the worst thing you can do is to, to get on and, and smooth everything out. So t- too often you see really good sites destroyed or good bits of land where someone will sit on a machine and just do um, circle work basically to try and... Because the, in their head they think, oh, I've got to get this nice and smooth um, before we seed it. So d- doing less rather than more is sometimes the key with that small um, undulations, knowing when to stop. Which must be your life is knowing is knowing when to stop. Okay, let's just leave that there. I mean, there's yeah. that has to be in everything, doesn't it? I mean, for when sure. You, that that walkthrough. No, no, no. Let's enough. And I was hopeless at that early on. Um, and I still probably with you, Eastern Sward was that was that the mistake you made at Eastern Sward? No, um, <laughs> no. I just think, and it's been with lots of things, like even with drawings, and you know, because I do a bit of drawing and what have you. Um, I used to find it harder to know when to stop. And my dad, who is an artist, would often, you know, say, hey, you know, you just stop, you're just fiddling now. And <laughs> it's true. And it's like, okay, 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 I'll stop. And I found it very much the same with golf course design. As we were building things, I'd just, I'd, I'd find it hard. I'd stew over things. The night before we're ready to grass, I'd quite often uh, think about something and then in the morning we'd be out there changing it. Or wow. So knowing when to call time and say, no, no, it's ready to seed, let's seed it. And I, I certainly have got better at that. Um, but, yeah, it can be challenging for sure. So you suffer for your art. I mean, this is, this is the, the role of the perfectionist and it's the, the danger of – because you want to produce the perfect golf course. Is that a quest for the perfect golf course or just something that you can sleep comfortably or is there a, is there a perfect golf course? No, I think no. It's it's. I think it's trying to do the very best, trying to get the most out of that particular site. I don't think you yeah. – you're not naively thinking that the yeah the second hole at Eastern Sward is the finest par five, <laughs> you know, in the Southern Hemisphere. It's not, but at the time I was just trying to make it as good as it possibly could be. Um, yes, in my head, you yeah. were thinking best eighteen of all time, though. Yeah, I mean, when you when you designed that hole, you were thinking, well, <laughs> I wonder if this will get voted in the best second holes in the world. Well, no, no but certainly then as the quality of the land gets better or the uh, reputation of the course that has to be in your conscience yeah, that you are suddenly thinking well this is a, a very very good sandbelt course already if we make this hole as good as it can be there's a chance it's you know suddenly it's a one of the best par threes in the country yeah. or you know but but that i was just going to say that comment about the little contours too it, it, it's a little bit site dependent too i mean that suits a, a link style course but it, if you suddenly put ripples in the fairway of some of the sandbelt courses, it would look really out of place. So yes. you've also got to know, you know, the sandbelt tends to be long slopes that there's not a lot of internal contour on greens. Around the, around the greens themselves, they're pretty smooth, really. They're kind of long grades and, you know, so, so you've also got to pick your mark at when that sort of look might suit the, the golf course. Uh, which uh, I guess also, you know, when we talk about look suiting golf course, we spoke about bunkers in our first uh, visit, mm-hmm. or your first visit to Tenuous Links, yep. uh, and I learned that I actually don't like Rivetta yeah, bunkers. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> um, and it's it's been fascinating. In fact, um, watching and now looking more critically at bunkers everywhere. But but when it comes to bunkers shaping, um, how do you sort of arrive at the shape without going into too much detail? How do you arrive at the shape, and then how deep in does it get before you know something needs tweaking? 
which then leads to the, have you ever gone, no, we've dug it it, wrong, fill it in. I'll answer the last question first, but yes, we've definitely done that. It happens quite a lot. Right. But if you're there all the time, you're not, you just don't want to get to the point where you've dug a bunker, you've drained it, you've clothed it, you've put sand in it, and then suddenly you decide, you know, oh, that's no good. So I think the more experienced you get, the better you are at seeing just a roughly dug hole and, and imagining, well, this is what it's going to ultimately look like. And so yeah. you can make adjustments to it or decide to fill it in and you, and you haven't wasted much time, which is another advantage of building the work yourself. It doesn't, or it shouldn't, cost the client more money. Whereas if you've gone to a contractor, they've done all this work and then you come in as an architect and say, well, uh, no, I want to fill it in. Well, then they're going to say to the client, um, okay, well, it's a variation because I've spent... Cha-ching. Yeah. I've spent two days doing that. So that's another reason why we like... Because if you're there all the time, you can make little adjustments and it doesn't... It's, it's not wasting money. Um, so that was the last bit of the question. The first bit... You know, I, liked, I, I should have asked that first. You should have. Um, next time. <laughs> the, I, <laughs> there won't be next time. You're not coming back. <laughs> um, I guess one thing that... And not everyone does it, but we take a lot of pride in trying to give each course we're on its own sort of unique or slightly different look and feel you know unique characteristics and and bunkering is a really common way of doing that an easy way to do that um and so we'll we'll try and see what kind of the site's telling us so if if it's a big scale site with no trees for instance it might suit quite big hazards you know it might be sort of more sandy wastes more rugged kind of style bunkers um like the way they treated the site down at Tariti in new zealand you see a lot of exposed yeah. sand um alternatively if it's a really tight narrow course it's probably more smaller bunkers and then the style of the bunker will start to evolve if it's a sand belt course well it would be it would be odd to move away from the style of bunkers that's made these courses famous so you would the capes and bays, the sort of the Morecambe style shaping would yep. suit it. Sometimes it's a function of the climate and the grass and the, so like at um, Shady Oaks, it gets heavy rain and we had to use a, a bunker liner. And so you, there's no sand there. It's a very heavy site. So you kind of, you're forced to have grassy lips. So, so then suddenly you've got that slightly rolled in look with the grass coming down. So even if you wanted to build a sandbelt style bunker, it wouldn't work there. So, so sometimes you're adapting the style of the bunker to suit other factors. Does that sort of answer your question? I'm just trying to think. Yeah, no, yeah. it does. Unfortunately, you've been far too intelligent once again. <laughs> um, so, so from there, and just so we don't labour the point about bunkers, but the, the last, well, well, there's two more on designing 101. Yeah. Choosing grasses. Yeah. Um, you know, you referred to the fact that some grasses travel better than others and and the pure distinction i think you might have been referring to pure distinction a pure distinction green say in the west of the united states will end up being slightly different to the east of the united states based on climate and a few other things but when it comes to choosing grasses what's the impact on pliability that a grass type will have and how much is that considered when it comes to design versus i just like working with these grasses usually it's not the architect's decision i think it's we would tend to defer to an agronomist. Um, it's probably a, a snake that you don't want to pick up, <laughs> to be honest. Because yes, right. if an architect started choosing a certain grass and it didn't work, um, 
you know. And, and, and to be honest, there's not, I, I don't know whether there are any architects that have an agronomy background. There might be. But, you know, they're, they're in a much better position to decide um, the exact grass varieties to, to use than we are. Sometimes we'll get involved, though. I mean, um, like at Sandringham, in the Melbourne climate, you could use all sorts of grasses on those greens. But I thought it would be nice to give the public golfer the same experience of playing Royal Melbourne. So that was a discussion between us and, and Richard Forsyth, the, the, the super yeah. at Royal Melbourne, and, and he was really comfortable with that. So we ended up using the Sutton's um, bent grass on the greens and they did the same fescue collars. So I guess in that, in that instance, it was, it, it was a, a discussion that we had. Sometimes with the fairways, there might be a few different options. Um, you know, if, if a course is Kaikuyu, sometimes the whole discussion about should we try and get rid of the Kaikuyu and convert it to Kuchras comes up. And there are not just agronomic considerations there, but there's design considerations too. So, so, that, so we might, you know, have an opinion on that because um, you really need to look at the, the full playing conditions over the 12 months and look at the pros and cons. You know, Kaikuyu for all of its negative aspects about not being able to hit bump and runs, it's, it's pretty bulletproof as a graph for yeah. 12 months of the year. It, it, it doesn't really have a dormancy. It looks good all the time, keeps its colour, um, whereas sometimes green surrounds and, and areas around greens in the middle of winter with cooch, they're not very pleasant. So, um, so, so sometimes we'll, we will have an opinion on it, but usually the, the ultimate decision will be one between the, the superintendent and the agronomist. Because I, I noticed... When they were talking about Kiowa, when the PJ was at Kiowa, um, the fairways had, had gone from Bermuda to Pespalum. I mean, they'd made a, a grass chain. Yeah. And it was more just that idea of, is there a point where, when it's uh, Bermuda or, or Cooch, as we call it down here, I'm guessing, you, you know, they, they speed things up and they speed the fairways up. And Royal Melbourne, going back to 2010, was it when they moved to Legend? Yeah. With the, with the desire of a grass to actually change, I don't know exactly the year, but the desire of the grass to therefore affect the playability of the course and maybe to slow the fairways down? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, that was the idea behind that grass because it was a bit more upright. The Santa Ana and Wintergreen, some of the hybrids are, are very tight. They're typically mown shorter. And so the concern was that to keep the course relevant, um, they could go to Legend and the, there'd be less ball roll. That was, that was the idea behind it. So the design considerations were, were a huge part of that decision there. Um, although since they've, I think they've moved away from that idea and are sort of heading back, back to towards, winter. yeah, wintergreen, I think. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, just because the lies are better and it's tighter and it's more raw Melbourne. So that's the, but if you've got money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess at the time they didn't know but i think some of the criticisms with it is that there's almost too um too much air under the grass like you can't compress the ball yeah. like you can with um you know something like santarana or wintergreen so well like you can well yes. like i used to I'm, be I'm able trying to, to. Like, yeah, that's right <laughs> Not anymore. um last last design 101 and i noticed this as i was telling my son up playing pga 2k 21 yep um and showing exactly how good i was we played peninsula north so my question is do you have a method of playing a golf course before it's built? Do you ever program, is there a method where you can program your golf course, say Shady Oaks or the big one that we'll talk about soon, um, into PJ 2K21 
and actually play it. Oh, can't knowing. I would have thought you could. Have you ever? No. It'll just change. So what's the point? <laughs> oh, it's a bloody revolution because you get to play it. And you get to say, actually, you know what, that swale just doesn't work there. Because if someone has hit it 308 yards off the tee, where we thought they'd end up because we set the grass conditions and we set the firm... This is genius. This is a game changer that I'm going to change your life with. To use PJ2K... Because I can tell you that Peninsula North, for anyone around the world listening, if they want to know what Peninsula Kingswood is like, um, but they just can't get to Australia because, I don't know, of a pandemic or, or otherwise, um, PJ... Peninsula North on PJ 2K21 is so close. Really, it's outrageous. Actually, I t- the um, yeah, there is a there's another golf game. I've got it on my iPad. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, Mario Brothers. No, it's a um, and you can play the old course um, at St Andrews. Right, it's yeah. incredible. The detail, it's unbelievable. I guess I, I would probably argue that that's the skill of the architect, though. That you should be able to do all those things you know the skill yeah. is to be able to think ahead you know and to know that yes, okay rather this, than need to rather than ra- need to test rather it. than the need to put it into a computer program yeah oh, disappointing again <laughs> but i think you can because we just did it's funny with um we're looking at a project at the moment at well it's actually it's it's a, a short course at kingston heath on the land left of the 12th hole well and um so we've been sort of doing quite a lot of work with that. And, but a company that we use in the UK are amazing called Harris Kalinka, if you want to ever look at their work online. And they, are, they do incredible animations of courses. And so with that, we did exactly what you're talking about. Where, so we did a, a detailed contour plan and gave that to them. And then I kind of just worked with them back and forth on all of the textures, you know, what will the grass look like, the heath, the sand. No, that doesn't look quite right. We need to change that. We had some drone footage done of the area so they can kind of figure out what the backdrops look like in the trees. And at the end, and the end result is they, you do this fly-through of, this, of the course for 45 or 50 seconds, and it looks so realistic they are amazing. these guys are amazing and so they'll move the sun the position of the sun to get different shadows they'll they can put people in there playing so you kind of get a sense of scale um it's amazing so it's pretty much what you're talking about um so you could do it would be really expensive to do that for a whole course but i guess you could um you know in theory. and and will as we move on to the, <laughs> the bigger projects now last before we do get onto the big stuff um here's just a, a philosophical question about 19th holes oh yeah yep what do you do when the 19th is in your best 18? Get rid of one. What, what, would you, what would you advise a golf club when the 19th hole, and there's a couple of good examples in Melbourne. Again, um, like two, 19 or two at Kingston Heath, um, two as I like to call it. I don't think, um, well, even though we built it, I think you'd have a hard time suggesting it is better. Oh, really? Which one do you think it's better then? Fuck. Um, I just think it's a great hole that deserves it. No, so this is the point, is that 10... So when tournaments are on at Kingston Heath, yeah. 10 comes out. It does. And, and the spare hole comes in. Yeah. And I think that's a real travesty because I think 120-metre par threes that are beasts yeah. is, oh, I is do just too. awesome. I agree. I also think the spare hole, though, is awesome. Um, and then when you think about Metro, um, yeah. the restored hole um, at, at Metro, yeah. um, you know, that's an easy decision. It's, it's an, an easy one, one. It's an yeah, easy yeah, decision. yeah. yeah. 
But um, and then did I spy a spear at Vic? Yes. Well, yeah, we built one right of eight. Seen so the there's a triangle of land, sort of right of eight, right of nine, right of the eleventh tee in there. So that that is a that's a spare. Um, they're a little bit hemmed in by length. It's not that long. It's about uh, it's about 115 meters, and it's sort of they can also use it as a as an extra short game facility, extra practice area. But yeah, so the the overall recommendation though, so a 19 hole is on a course without naming the course, uh, but it's in their best eighteen clearly. Do you just say, you know, just have members look forward to playing it? Like what 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 would you do? I don't know. I mean, I guess. There's a few points. Like, I mean, I think 19th holes became a little bit... Everyone was sort of trying to keep up with the Joneses. And so all of a sudden, everyone wanted to do a 19th hole. And Kingston Heath did start the trend. And there was a re- and the reason you mentioned was the start of it was because they wanted a 2T start um, in tournaments. Yeah. And they couldn't do it. Um, personally, I don't see the big deal with starting on one and starting on seven. But anyway, I think it was for the Australian Open. But if you don't use it all the time, I think they're a complete waste of money. Yeah. Because most, if you, as a general rule of thumb, it's about $100,000 a hole to maintain a sandbell golf course, more or less. So what, you know, if you're spending 100 grand a year on a, on a hole and it's not being used, like, it seems an incredible waste of money to me. So I think it's fine if you build it and you can use it as a short game facility or use it as a practice area for most of the year and then when you need yes, to pull yeah. a hole out of play, do it. I yep. think it works really well when it integrates into the course like it does at Metro or Kingston Heath. Yep. And Kingston Heath do it very well. They, they rest one of the par threes Monday to Friday for the entire year. So if you go there Monday to Friday, the, the spare hole will be in play and one of the others will be rested. So they, it works very well because they can really help spread the wear on those short holes, particularly holes like 10, where everyone's hitting a wedge into it, so you get a lot of pitch yeah. marks. Um, yeah. Sometimes they'll rest the short part four, the third as well. So I think when it when it when it achieves that, it, it can work really well too. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that's you know, I'm just going to have to accept your but, your answer. Um, now I'm going to I'm going to go with a, a small project that I'm excited by, and then we'll just cut to the chase and, and get to the big one. So so just one or two minutes on this Latrobe Golf Club. In Elfington in Victoria, a, a place where I grew up playing golf um, and played a lot of golf there. And um, the combination of a little bit of vision and a lot of vision from Kras, uh, from Tony Craswell, who's the, yep. the player there, uh, and also the, the, the GM of seeing, um, of seeing a block of land or parcel of land. In fact, in fact, really a slither of land saying, what can we do with it yeah. to actually implement this hashtag grow the game as opposed to just talk about it from a marketing point of view. So Latrobe Golf Club, the loop, do you want to sure. where, how, and um, what is it? Give us a so Tony deserves a lot of credit for that. He really had a vision. He was, he's very, is very passionate about growing the game. Um, and he has seen the issues with trying to get women into the game that didn't, you know, that are, that are new to it, that they'd be very intimidated um, hitting off the first tee in front of the clubhouse, all the men watching. Yeah. Um, he wanted somewhere away from the, the course where you could kind of just get comfortable with, with hitting golf shots, you know. Um, 
he was keen for to get kids involved, um, kids with disabilities as well. So he's got all these ideas and, and potentially extending golfers' lives too when they get to a certain age and they find the big course, you know, too tough. So we were always keen. I really liked the front range area. I thought we could do something in there, but the club preferred that as a, as a driving range, which is, which is fair enough, and they've since kind of upgraded that. So then it threw up the idea of using what you would remember as the back driving range, I guess. Um, yeah. The problem was the club had put a water storage right in the middle of it, and it's a turkey... A massive one. Yeah, and it's a turkey nest. So turkey nest water storages are the ones that stick up out of the ground because yeah. it's in a floodplain. So it's not exactly prime golfing real estate. <laughs> it's flat. Wasn't. Wasn't. It's flat floodplain and a dam in the middle. Um, but and it, a river running around it. Yeah, but it's in this cool little nook of the river. So the river kind of wraps around and creates this little pocket there. So that became the, the idea for, can we do something in there? So we, we did a number of different concepts. In the end thought we could do probably five holes five sort of short holes that go around the water it took a long time to get through planning and there was a lot of different approval um, processes but then we ended up starting it um, last year and um, yeah it's 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 turned out really well Um, one of the things we were trying to do was to visually take away uh, the feeling that you're playing around a water storage so we managed to do a lot of cut and fill in there. It had to be neutral cut to fill because it's a floodplain, so you can't just import materials. So, but there were some spots where we managed to dig down quite a lot, use the material to kind of um, break up the, because it was a very flat top line of the water storage. Um, so we've sort of given that some character. That's got some fescue all the way around it now, so it just kind of looks like you know dunes or mounds, if you like. Yep. Um, yep. And it's just, they're, they're fun holes. They're kind of from 80 metres to... 120 metres, all short grass. It's all mowed as short grass, um, handful of bunkers, kind of similar size greens to those on the course, kind of 500 square metres. Um, and I think at this stage we're hoping it's going to open in um, probably spring, I would say, October. Um, yeah, but, and it just yeah. looks like it just looks like fun. I mean, it, it actually looks like fun, but it's in terms of being built for purpose, the extension is, is that we now get a five-hole short course that is perfect introduction to the game of golf. Yet a perfect challenge for scoring shots. And this is the other thing, talking to Tony, about the scoring opportunities for, for pennant teams or for elite players, whereby the whole focus is on nailing the, the short game. Because the reality is, is the greens at the, in the loop or in the Latrobe 5 or whatever disco name they're going to come up yeah, with yeah. will actually be the best greens on the course yeah. because you haven't mucked around with them. <clears> and the bunkers, like it is just a phenomenal little standalone yeah, it's, Golf course. A, it's, it's fun and, you know, I mean, that, and that was sort of the idea behind Kingston Heath's a, a slightly larger version, but, you know, it's not just about growing the game with kids and, and getting more, you know, women participation. It's extending the game for, for the older golfers, but they're not exactly as you said. They're actually really good areas for um, good golfers, for elite golfers to kind of um, use it as a practice facility and kind of hone their game from 100 metres in. Um, but that's Latrobe, and that's not the reason and the main reason we got you on. So, so there was an announcement um, last year that I think was was the biggest announcement and the most exciting thing that I'd heard regarding Australian golf. A little bit biased because I know you. That got the least amount of publicity of, and still I cannot understand what's going on. So, Michael, what were you appointed to do last year, and what's the scope? And can you just 
do the proper marketing job that Australian golf failed to do on what I think is the coolest thing ever? Uh, I'll try. Uh, so, yeah, so we were originally shortlisted. Uh, we were approached by Medina. So um, Medina Country Club in Chicago, um, host of multiple majors. Oh, that one. Yep. Um, there was a Ryder Cup there, wasn't there? Yeah, the, the Miracle at Medina, of course, 2012. Um, 12, yeah. And then 2006 PGA, um, they've, they've hosted one Tiger. Yeah, sort of six or seven majors. Famous course, three courses there. So um, course number three is the tournament course. That's the, the famous one. Um, so, yeah, so we were approached as to see if we were interested in uh, becoming their architects. And after a six or nine month process, we were awarded the, the job to redesign uh, course number three. And I think a couple of weeks after that, they were announced um, as the host of the 2026 uh, President's Cup. So it's, it's exciting on a whole range of levels, um, but certainly interesting to be appointed knowing that there's a major event coming up. So, that, you know, that's kind of in the you know, forefront of your mind. So a little, the, the, the little crew that could from Sandringham in Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. Madonna number three. So first of all, Shady Oaks. I mean, yeah. let's not mess around. Shady Oaks with its its iconic heritage and history. And then your second dabble over there is a, is a place called Madonna. Um, and let's just get this out of the way, is that I need a group of four um, whenever <laughs> I go over there. Um, I'll, I'll take whatever tea times I can get. But what was the, so what was the feel? You're awarded, you finally get that phone call or that email. So between between you, um, Ashley, and Jeff, what was that initial um, squeezing of the butt cheek reaction? Oh, look, it was yeah. I mean, we're just. I th- it was. I th- liken it to. I can't remember who I was saying this to, but I liken it to. I remember the very first tournament I ever won, which was at La Trobe. I won the thirty six hole. Yeah, I won the thirty six hole over Witten there. Seventy six sixty six. I remember. Whoa. Yeah, it was quite a... Hunter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember, you know, because you sort of, as a golfer, you're always thinking, you know, we're, we're about winning, you know. And then when it finally happened, it was more just satisfaction, I found. I was thinking I'd, you know, be fist pumping and all the rest of it. But it's not. Yeah. You just kind of, you, you know, in that quiet moment you have, you sit back and you just kind of reflect. And, um, and it was just immensely satisfying. And I found that very much the same with both when we won the job at Shady Oaks, but also Medina, where you just, I kind of tend to think back to all the, you know, 20 years ago and, you know, sitting in the office trying to, you know, dreaming of bigger jobs and uh, uh, success. And it's just, it's more just very satisfying sort of thinking back to all of that and all the people that have, you know, you've been involved with along the way. And um, yeah, but but then you, you don't really have much time to, in that moment of reflection, then suddenly it's, oh, right, now, now we've got to get started. Yes. <laughs> so You've got to start stressing because the 2026 President's Cup um, is, is being staged there and that is um, a, a big event. So therefore, as you think about it from a design and architectural point of view, is there a plan that the work that you will do will be fully implemented by then? Yeah, that's right. Is that? Yeah. 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 So it's it's not just a, a scoping planning mission. This is a... a um, a redesign. How do you describe what you're doing at Medina Number Three? Yeah, it's it's um it's a good question, and that was certainly part of the discussion. Was is this a redesign? Is it a restoration? Is it, or is it 
making the course the very best it can be. And if that happens to be elements of both, then so be it. And, that, and that's really where we landed. Um, it, it does have an interesting history. Um, there's an architect who you may not know, a lot of Australians wouldn't know, but a guy called Tom Bendelau. Um, he built, oh, I've got a quote from him. Oh, there you go. He built a lot of courses in America. They called him the Johnny Appleseed yeah. of, um, yes. of golf course architecture. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, and I, look, I've seen a few of his courses, some, some good, some bad, or some good, not so good. Um, anyway, he, he did a lot of work there. He did all three courses, and then they converted number three from a nine-hole course to an 18-hole course. Then it's a little bit murky as to whether um, Tillinghurst was involved there or not. He certainly did some consulting there, and, and we were really lucky. They've got an amazing archival, you know, historical information, old photos, old aerials, old plans, irrigation plans, topos, you name it. And we actually fe- we did find a lot of interesting stuff on the course, particularly around the late 30s, early 40s. So in our, we, we've prepared concepts for, for every hole, uh, some early concepts, um, and there are certainly some elements that are almost a restoration, you could say. So some bunker positions, some um, holes that have been more heavily treed now, but back then they weren't, and, um, you know, we felt they were better then than they are now. And then there's, there's other parts of the course that are, that are a total redesign. So, um, yeah, and so, so at this stage where... Um, so Ashley and I are leaving on the 1st of August, so... Um, and we're over there for six weeks, and and then hopefully towards the end, Jeff will be over there as well with us. So, um, now, how many times have you visited Madonna, uh, either in the lead up to getting awarded the contract or post? Well, yeah. So that was the amazing thing, really, was that it was all done uh, remotely. So I, I'd been to Chicago before, but to say I was intimately familiar with the course would be um, overstating it. Jeff knew it very well. Um, yeah. he, he'd played there quite a lot and most recently the 2006 PGA so um, so we really need to spend time on the ground really we've done we've been so lucky that we've got so much information and we've had I had a friend go there and take a lot of photos and drone imagery of every hole and the club have since done that as well and so we, we have been able to in light of COVID we, we've been able to do uh, to be honest a lot more work than I ever would have thought possible from here yeah I was always probably a bit, you know, oh, you've got to be there, you've got to be on the ground. And, you know, but whereas we have done, it, it's been amazing really. And cross-referencing, you know, you get a, you watch a hole in a drone video and then you're looking at old plans and then you're cross-referencing it with photos and what have you. And you, you, you are able to piece together a lot. So, yeah, and, and that was, I guess, th- throughout the whole interview process, just to touch on one of your earlier comments, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster because... I was in Texas when we got the email and I th- it was like February of 2020, I guess, last year, yeah. And um, everything was fine then, you know. There was a bit of talk yeah. about this sort of flu in, you know, China and, oh, well, that's fine and <laughs> nothing's going to come here. And Not like Shooter or I would have dismissed it. No. <laughs> so I was planning on just going up to Chicago at some point. Um, I think in April we were planning on doing it. And then, of course, you know, everything happened. So then my instant reaction was, oh, well, we're not going to get the job now. That's it. That's done. Um, and, I, and I would have understood that as a, as a board member, it probably would have been seen as being the more obvious decision to go with a local architect. Um, 
and then and so I just found every month there were these, you know, we had a great interview and so suddenly your emotions are high and then you realise that, oh, no, we can't get there for another six months. Oh, we're going to lose it again. Yeah. So it was, it was sort of this constant up and down. And then, um, yeah, and then, and, then fi- and then finally elation in, um, you know, October or November when we won the job. Um, and as rhetorical comment, um, you would have been overwhelmed with the amount of contacts uh, you immediately received from um, both golf architects and golf media uh, throughout Australia. Anyway, from what is your biggest fear then when it comes to having a job like that? Um, what, what are you most fearful of? What excites you most about the opportunity, but what are you most fearful of given there's no pressure in getting it ready for 2026 President's Cup and being on the world stage with OCM stamped next to it and me standing next to you? What's, so what's the, mo- what's the excitement and what's the fear? Uh, it, the fear isn't getting it done in time or anything like that. The fear is always making it the very best it can be. You yeah. just don't want it. You just don't want that nagging golf course design can be quite lonely at times where because it's just you and your thoughts so you and you always doubt yourself so you, you quite often you're stewing over things you know you build a certain hole and you're looking at it and you're studying it and you know should I do this should I do that would it be better if we did this it goes back to a lot of our <laughs> some of the discussions earlier and then so sometimes having a colleague and that's why it's it's very helpful um with Jeff and Ashley and I mean Ashley I probably talk to well both of our wives joke that we talk to each other more than them um and it it is hugely helpful to have someone who you respect look at work that you've done and that you've sweat over and stewed on and say that yes it's good (laughs) or you know just just to give you that buck up or 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 and to sort of bounce off each other or did you consider this did you consider that so I, I do find having partners having you know it must be very lonely to be a one-man band out there and not have any staff and just it's just you but ultimately it just comes down to whether you think it's good or not um i've gone on a massive tangent there i just can't remember where we no, started no you haven't no, no you haven't you, you haven't at all i think that's that's the insight that we don't often understand yeah oh so the fear that's right yeah so the so the fear is always that is this as good as it can be um and i don't i don't, I don't you know we're very um, confident in our own abilities and I'm sure we'll do a, a fantastic job. But you just always, yeah, you just always, no matter where the site, it doesn't have to be Medina, it could be down the road. You just always, you don't want to leave anything um, out there that um, could have made the whole better. Tom Bendelow um, would often describe his courses as, as sporty, um, meaning that they should present both enjoyable play for beginner and advanced players. And there's a thing, not too hard to discourage the new player and not without challenge to the more accomplished player. So again, it gets back to rabbit and tiger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's your obligation to honour the, the original design intent or design philosophy, or do you work within that as a parameter but not as a restriction? I think that the, the rabbit and the tiger quote, uh, Darwin's quote at the start is... is Especially, and it's what I was thinking of when you mentioned it. I was thinking of Madonna because it's really pertinent for them, because they are a very proud tournament host and would like to be for the next many decades. So it's it's critical that what we build is challenging and interesting and fun for the the tool player, and that they're not necessarily shooting thirty five under. Um, but it's still at the end of the day, it's a members golf course, and it needs to be enjoyable for them too. Um, and it's the kind of the, it's the most famous course there, so it's the one that all guests want to play. And, um, so we we absolutely have to tick both of those boxes as part of the redesign. 
so I think so. Just parking Madonna, which I, I think is is just incredible, and we wish you all the success and look forward to Golf Parents being next to you when it's launched. Where to from here on an international scale? Like, what do you think, Madonna? The opportunities that will come to you for being able to have a resume that now says Shady Oaks and Madonna Number Three. Um, what what is there a project out there? I've nominated you for the Tory Pines redevelopment. <laughs> because I, I think you do great things there. But is there other things on the radar that obviously you can't tell us, but you can tell us? There's a couple of really exciting prospects in the States that um, as part of this next trip, we're hoping to, well, we'll get to spend time there as well. Um, but I can't really say much more than that. Um, sure. Look, I think we've looked at a number of jobs in, if you, if you sort of just think about the, the world, <laughs> um, <laughs> We've looked at lots of jobs in Asia in the past, um, and we did do a big project in China. Um, But they're still at a point... Well, we we found that a lot of the projects we looked at were usually still after a name, so they're they're almost in that mindset of where we were in the 80s. 70s, 80s. And and we're not ever going to... Even though Jeff's a very well-known tour professional, they're not going to use... Jeff to go and sell real estate or, um, you know, yeah. sell memberships necessarily. So we, and we, look, we looked at quite a few really interesting projects, but just never could really um, get across the line there. And Europe's a bit of a closed shop, really. There's not that much work there. Um, whereas, so I think America is just such a great opportunity for us. Um, we've been lucky. Uh, Shady was a fantastic project and it's been really, really well received and it's getting some terrific um, great comments from members and, and guests and then obviously Medina. So I, I would love to think that we will always have a project or a couple of projects that we're looking at. Um, we, we don't want to spread ourselves too thin. And then yeah. we still have lots of clients back here in Australia that we don't want to ever leave. So, I mean, it would be brilliant if we could divide our time between um, basically here in America. Um, and from a golf baron's point of view, and I don't want to reiterate this point, too often, but we appreciate the fact with every pitch, you're allocating a, a group of four yes, yes. on the first tee, uh, just to us, which is something that not many people know, but it was uh, one of the benefits of doing our original podcast is it's now contractual yeah. and contracted. So so the last thing, so let, let's just park that and say we're, we're immensely proud as Australian golfers, we're immensely proud that an Australian firm Thank you. Thank was you. given that that role and we are we are excited and there should be mass excitement about watching this journey and hopefully golf brands can be a part of uh, the journey even just keeping an eye on what you're doing and, and touching base because i think this is it's fascinating well and i think we'll be able to um, share we, we can't at this stage obviously because it's some of the ideas we've come up with only a group of six of the medina project committee have seen and we, and, and, and we still need to flush all of that out on the ground but i think once once things are released to members and they become, you know, or if they get to the point where we can talk a bit more about it, then, um, yeah, it'd be great to, to share that with you. Including the Baron's Bunker. Now, as the last thing, because you did promise that you, well, you didn't actually no, promise. I, didn't. I, I promised on your behalf. Um, now, the last thing we'd, we'd like to do is to get you, now, last time we did a little bit of a, a psychological analysis of how you'd play a few holes. But but to finish today's podcast, I'd I'd like you to sell us golf. Tell us why golf. If I have to stand up in front of a school or a group or a community, or you had to, more to the point, sell us golf, Michael Cocking. I was thinking about, uh, this is the only question you said you might ask me. (laughs) And I was thinking about it this morning. 
how I would sell it. And I don't think I'm a great salesperson. However, I was thinking of sort of four or five key things that I think are great about golf. And the first one was that it's never repetitive for starters. So if you think about other sports, swimming being one, (laughs) you stare at that black line for 30 minutes or an hour. Every day is the same. It doesn't matter. You could fast forward 20 years. Doesn't matter if it's a Monday or Sunday, summer, winter, autumn, spring. Every day is the same, which maybe some people like. I personally don't. Every field is different. I love the fact with golf that it's not just the game of golf. It's that it's the experience of playing a different course. And if you think of other sports, it's very rare that you change the field of play. So tennis, whilst you might move locations, it's the same tennis court. It's the same football field. It's the same soccer pitch. Um, but golf, you get this unique experience. You can be in a Lynx course in Britain, you can be a course in Melbourne, you know, Pine Forest in Canada, whatever. Um, and they feel completely different. So you're getting these, all these amazing experiences. Not, a, not only are you getting the thrill of hitting a golf ball, um, so the act of hitting a ball, the act of scoring, but then also you're getting this experience of a different field, which I think is brilliant. I think it's terrific that you can play by yourself or you can play in a team. Not many sports. Can't go and play tennis by yourself. Can't go and play footy by yourself. So if you're really ugly or you have no friends, brilliant game. <laughs> play by yourself. No, so, so I think that's a terrific tick for golf. Caters for all standards, all ages. Um, you know, some sports, you have to have a certain level of competency for it to be enjoyable. I think one of the brilliant aspects with golf is you could spend 10 minutes with a six-year-old, a putter and a golf ball, and they can have so much fun playing mini golf right through to someone who's very, very accomplished and both get the same thrill out of hitting a golf ball. Um, the, 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 the short course at La Trobe and some of the other short courses we've looked at, what one of the the idea, the ideas there is that you can have three generations of golfers all standing on the same tee and all getting the same level of enjoyment, even though, you know, the kid might be hitting a putter all the way to the, all the way to the pin, you know, the 40 year old might be an accomplished golfer and the 70 year old, you know, is at the end of their golfing life perhaps. But, um, so appeals to all ages, either sex, all standards, and then it's a great equaliser. Was the other thing I liked was it sort of doesn't matter what your background is. You can play as a group. You know, a CEO could be playing with a tradie. And it kind of just, it's a very level playing field. I think it's one of the nice things. I always liked, um, particularly as a kid, you play with all sorts of different, very social, all sorts of different backgrounds. um, And kind of everyone's on this sort of level playing field. Not, Not so much, you know, hierarchy. So... I think that's that's I mean that's flushed out about as many as I can think of. That's right. I mean, on the basis of that, I am I am in, and that's that's the point is that we all love it, and I think that's a perfect way um, to bring this tenuous links podcast to a close. Um, thanks again to you, Michael, for your insights that's right. uh, and the ease with which you convey them. You're annoyingly eloquent and intelligent as always. Thank you, Phil. So I thank enjoyed you. it. Terrific. A reminder that our Golf Parents show is streaming on KO and Foxtel On Demand, and we reckon it's pretty good, just quietly. Um, remember to hit the subscribe button at golfbarons.com to make sure you never miss a podcast episode and for all other Golf Barons updates. Keep an eye on what's happening at Medina number 3, and until next time, Barons, add some swagger to your swing.